Hello friends and dear listeners. Recently we were urged by a couple of our British listeners and experienced audio producers in the podcasting space to nominate our last season's science documentary podcast on psychedelics for the British Podcast Awards. Upon their insistence, we did. We made the initial cut and were asked to send in a 30-minute tape detailing a minimum of five different sections from three episodes. After sending in the tape, upon judging by an expert panel of judges, we didn't make the final cut and lost out to some of the big production houses like the BBC and Noiser, etc. But we decided, rather than holding back, we would present that audio tape to you all to refresh your memories in case you've already heard our psychedelics documentary. Or if you didn't, this is a good time to go and explore these 10 episodes and three bonus episodes. We're extremely proud of our work. We were novices, but producing this documentary series gave us the experience and it was one wonderful experience. So without further ado, here is the 30-minute tape we sent for the second stage of the nomination process. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to summarize for you the meeting that I have just had with the bipartisan leaders, which began at 8 o'clock and was completed two hours later. I began the meeting by making this statement, which I think needs to be made to the nation. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I've asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. 18 June 1971. Spurred on by decades-old prohibition laws, the 1960s counterculture, anti-war protests and self-induced paranoia, US President Richard Nixon declared that drugs were public enemy number one. At this point, the anti-drug policy looks completely rational. The world had come together to fight a common enemy. But this one did not have World War II or Cold War issues or undertones. It was a battle not against a government or a set of ideals. It was a battle against chemicals. The social and cultural happenings after the Second World War led to a certain class of mind-manifesting molecules being lumped in with other drugs like heroin and cocaine. Nixon, in fact, went on to create the Drug Enforcement Agency to ensure that these substances were controlled. The stories that you hear about psychedelics are always portrayed to have begun here. But there is more to the story. For centuries and across civilizations, mankind's tryst with understanding the mind has captivated priests, warriors, artists, singers, songwriters, and even scientists. Yet, the existing treatments only affect the brain and its processes, but seem less to positively impact the mind. Recent evidence has turned this thinking on its head. This is Psychedelics, a Scraps original podcast exploring the therapeutic use of psychedelics an enthralling story of an improbable drug class as old as humankind itself, banished into exile, yet comes back soaring like a phoenix from the ashes to save mankind's affliction with mental health disorders. 
When we first uncovered the journey of psychedelic molecules, we weren't just intrigued. We got upset and even a tad bit annoyed at the sheer mistreatment that these molecules have been through the course of history. To really understand the value of these drugs, one needs to first realize the journey that these substances have been on to being discovered, used, revered, misunderstood, abused and even chastised. Above all, it is also crucial to understand how these drugs were and should be employed. Through the course of this podcast, we will take you behind the history of psychedelic substances and their use, to how these plant products shaped the spiritual lives of people in centuries gone by, to how the Western civilization found them, to the stories of both systematic and serendipitous discovery of its chemical constituents. We will also talk about the colorful personalities associated with psychedelics throughout history and even how they were used by intelligence agencies in an attempt to control the mind. While doing all of this, we will constantly reset our collective misunderstanding of what these substances are, where things went wrong, and we will question the preconceived notions on all sides. I am Arun Sridhar. Along with Jojo Platt, we will bring you first-hand accounts from patients, physicians, scientists, innovators, and even investors who are working together, gathering evidence, so as to not repeat the mistakes of the past and bring these therapies to patients. It is a story that you probably have not heard in full. In the last episode, we had a glimpse of how the discovery of certain modern medicines evolved in today's Western society. We also ruminated on the Western world's fascination with recreational substances like nitrous oxide, which started off as a medical experiment, became a tool for pleasure at the hands of Humphrey Davies and his laughing parties, before it ultimately became an anesthetic. But nitrous oxide became an anesthetic agent only after a tumultuous period that involved the suicide of the very physician who proposed it. The journey of nitrous oxide teaches us that even if a substance has a medical use, it is possible for it to be condemned within the medical and regulatory frameworks. We then traveled to the Peruvian Andes where we discovered that Native American population used indigenous plants like the granddaddy San Pedro cactus and its dwarf cousin, the peyote cactus, in communal religious ceremonies. The ceremony served a spiritual purpose, to heal the mind of the native people. The use of cacti dates back to the period even before Christ. However, Spanish conquistadors denounced the use of peyote and the San Pedro cactus in an effort to exert control over the villagers they sought to rule. Religion and perception clashed. While the Christian missionaries spoke about God, the natives used these indigenous plants in order to speak directly with God. Intolerance, fueled by deep-rooted misconceptions and fear, laid the groundwork for subjugation and even, to a large extent, driving these customs underground. Was that all? Centuries summarized in a few sentences? How did the white man know that the peyote cactus could actually be synthesized into a crystalline substance that could open the doors of perception, and that such a mind-opening experience would change modern culture through the voice of an English writer who ingested it? All I can say is that history, just like life, goes round in circles. What goes up must come down. Sunny Cyprus, and the year is 1955. 
It was around the same time as we saw in the last episode where Aldous Huxley took a dose of crystalline mescaline. So following on from Hefter's self-experimentation in 1897, mescaline had entered society. Mescaline, through the studies of German psychologist Beringer, had been shown to be producing psychosis. But in the late 1940s and early 1950s, the world was going through a tumultuous political change after the Second World War. Colonialism was gradually winding down. Let's take one example. Ethniki Organosis Kiprion Agonistan or IOKA, a Greek Cypriot nationalistic organization, was engaged in armed conflict with the British army as part of their fight for independence. The Suez Canal built by the British in the previous century was going to be engulfed in a crisis potentially impacting goods transit. During the Suez Canal crisis, the British seemed to be losing steam and giving up colonies. There was also an interesting experiment that went on in an army barrack in Cyprus that was televised by British Pathé films at this time. An interesting subplot followed. Military commanders devised a training exercise that by today's standards would be considered outrageous, immoral and entirely unbelievable. It was labeled as a training exercise but was in fact one of the first scaled experiments using psychedelics on military personnel. Up to this point, mescaline was the OG, the original gangster. But all of this was about to change. The chemist Albert Hoffman locks up the molecule as it didn't have any impact on tests he conducted. He archives the compound and goes about his work for another six years. So first, I'm going to tell you the story that the world celebrates. You ready? Switzerland was largely unaffected during World War II. So in 1943, while trying to work on something else, Hoffman opens a vial and while running his tests, spills some. It sticks to the surface of the counter and while moving about carrying on his work, he accidentally ingests the drug LSD-25. Everything seems fine for a bit, but soon he starts feeling uneasy. His heart rate speeds up and he decides he can't take it anymore and jumps on his bicycle accompanied by his friend. What follows is the legendary bicycle trip that is widely known and even has a cult following where every year, Bicycle Day is celebrated on April 19th. Hoffman's cycle ride home was unlike any other that he had taken before. The road and everything around him was transformed into a panorama of colors and geometric shapes and the 10-minute cycle ride seemed to go on for hours. And now you know where the word trip came from to describe the psychedelic experience. Now, where were we? In the last episode, we recounted how LSD entered society. Albert Hoffman synthesized it in 1939, and once he did, he shelved it because it did not provide the efficacy for pain that he was looking for. Four years later, call it intuition or an educated guess or serendipity, he felt that he needed to research the shelved compound LSD-25. At this time, he accidentally ingested it. The Technicolor bicycle trip, revered by many, was the starting point. LSD became the tiger. Depending on who you asked at the time, it was the most regal animal, one that would tame the mind, provide self-introspection, and mystical experiences. Or, if you ask the other camp, it was a tiger waiting to pounce on its prey only to devour it piece by piece. 
So LSD was a hero and a villain at the same time. The perfect god, Janus. Let's take the regal view of this tiger first. Hoffman came back from his trip with a renewed love for and connection with the beauty around him. And he wasn't alone. Sandoz had no clue what was happening and how this compound should be employed. It was the days of the wild, wild west. Molecules went from discovery to clinical studies in just two years. But in LSD's case, it went from the vial straight to the mouth. Sandoz shipped these drugs to anyone with even a whisper of an idea wanting to test it in a clinical setting. It quickly entered widespread psychiatric use even before it was known what LSD would be used for. Osman and some of his contemporaries used it in an attempt to treat alcoholism, but at the same time, the same way that mescaline was willingly provided to Huxley, they freely distributed LSD for clinical experimental use. We can argue about whether Osman and his colleagues were right or wrong, or acted responsibly or irresponsibly. We could ask if a drug, just because it provided an experience different from the existing psychiatric practices of the time, should be given out like candy. But I think we'll steer clear of passing judgment. Just like a good gardener, our job is to seed these questions in your head. Now let's go to the Johnny Appleseed of LSD, Al Hubbard. Hubbard entered the fray and used his charismatic muscle to introduce LSD into California. So the stage was set for an enthralling drama, one where opinions, ideologies, and personalities, an ego or lack thereof, depending on who you ask, would clash and set off a ticking time bomb. What were those happenings? What is the common thread that ties the Nazi chief scientist, Kurt Blom, a janitor in a psychiatric office who became the best-selling writer and social celebrity, the psychedelic rock band, Mary Pranksters, a Harvard professor, and the CIA. The simple answer? It's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Just like what Osmond said, to fathom hell or soar angelic, take a pinch of psychedelic. A pinch of psychedelic was enough to make the world go round in circles, like a snake biting its own tail. Should we dig in? For a variety of reasons, senior officers at the CIA became seized with the idea that the Soviets or the Chinese, or some adversary of us, what we used to call communism, had discovered the secret. Therefore, once having mistakenly convinced themselves of this, it was just a short step for these early CIA officers to conclude that any research that we could do, no matter how grotesque, would simply be a defensive maneuver. Therefore, uh, the CIA uh, gave its full endorsement to a project that wound up involving the most extreme and intense experiments on human beings that have ever been conducted by any officer or agency of the U.S. government. Uh, when I was researching this book, Poisoner in Chief, uh, it was quite a, a revelation to me to come to this place, Villa Schuster, which I think may have been the very first CIA secret prison. And uh, the owner, who was very genial, took me down into the basement and he showed me his storerooms and said, these are the cells 
where the CIA people and their Nazi partners were carrying out experiments that were only continuations of the experiments that they had been carrying out just down the road in the concentration camps only a few years earlier. Now these doctors working for the CIA. The grand scale of Villa Schuster was ideal for covert operations. A parlor with high ceilings, a massive fireplace, and generous areas for dining and socializing was sandwiched between two upper floors, offering residence to a dozen bedrooms, allocated for scientists and visiting government personnel, and a basement with a maze of brick storerooms doubling as cells. The remote location at the end of Waldorf Lane provided the privacy necessary for the villa's use as a black site, all the while maintaining the appearance of a country estate visited by successful and important members of German and foreign society. There are some indications of what these experiments might have been like. In particular, I can cite one. We have a report of an experiment that was carried out in a federal prison in Lexington, Kentucky. Gottlieb loved prison experiments because, of course, the prisoners are completely reliant on their wardens and uh, cannot be uh, forced to sign anything like uh, uh, informed consent, regardless of official rules at those times. So uh, in this experiment, uh, the the prison doctor who was working with Gottlieb segregated seven African-American inmates and fed them what were described in the memo as triple and quadruple doses of LSD every day for 77 days. These African-American inmates had no idea what they were being given or what was happening to them. As I read about this, I began wondering, what happened to those men? We, we never knew their names. I wonder, did they ever come to an understanding of what was done to them? But just when you think the story hits the height of gore, it only gets more savage. Kinzer reports that several people have reached out to him after the 2019 publication of Poisoner in Chief. They reported to him that they believed a family member had been a victim of the program. By Kinzer's estimation, many of those stories fit the MO and are likely to be true. Now, there was one interesting case of a person who was a subject in a prison experiment uh, who later did figure out what had happened to him. And this was a guy who later became a kind of notorious criminal that was Whitey Bulger, the famous gangster from Boston. So when Whitey Bulger was just a street thug in Boston, he was arrested in his 20s and sent to the state penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. There, a doctor named Carl Pfeiffer, who was a contractor for MK Ultra, he was working for Sidney Gottlieb, was carrying out LSD experiments. Um, Gottlieb apparently wanted to know what would be the effect of dosages over a long, sustained period. Um, Prisoners were recruited, among them Whitey Bulger, and told not only that they would get favorable treatment, but that they would be contributing to research aimed at finding a cure for schizophrenia. At one point, Bulger, by his own account, begged to be taken out of this experiment. It was too overwhelming for him. He couldn't sleep. He was seeing wild delusions because he was given LSD every single day for months. 
Uh, but he said, Dr. Pfeiffer kept saying, you're one of our best subjects. We're almost approaching a cure. You have to keep going. Years later, 20 years later, Whitey Bulger, now a gang boss in Boston, reads about MK Ultra, and he figures out that's the same Dr. Pfeiffer. And he told the members of his gang in Boston, I'm going to go to Atlanta, I'm going to find that guy, and I'm going to kill him. Now, he didn't do that. But it shows you that at least one person put it all together and had emotions of that intensity. As the trails of RPGs lit up the deserted bazaar in the southern town of Afghanistan, the commanding officer thought that Lance Corporal Bernie had stepped on an explosive. The three-day fight to reclaim this Taliban stronghold was fierce. The blood and the bullets were relentless. Casualties and life-altering injuries were the norm, and returning to base in one piece was a rarity. The squad had made significant advances in fighting the enemy back, but now they found themselves stuck under interminable and heavy fire. They had one wounded man and their location was perilous. They were on a narrow crossroad with the insurgents hiding in an orchard ahead of them, buildings with possible snipers behind them, and a patch of recently turned earth in the middle. All of the soldiers knew that the patch of disturbed dirt was just as likely to be laced with IEDs as anything else. The commanding officer ordered his troops to advance to a cover of a mud wall and the irrigation ditch. The bullets seemed to gain speed, momentum, and the frequency as the last night of day faded. Jacobs, an embedded reporter, would write in a journal, and I quote, that's when I realized that there was a casualty and saw the injured Marine about 10 yards from where I had stood. For the second time in my life, I watched a Marine lose his. He was hit with the RPG, which blew off one of his legs and badly mangled the other. I hadn't seen it happen, just heard the explosion. I hit the ground and lay as flat as I could and shot what I could of the scene. Two Marines stood over their injured brother. Their protective stance gave cover to Bernie and left them exposed. Things were not looking good. The first tourniquet on the leg broke. They applied another. There wasn't much to work in terms of supplies or the leg. The screaming was unbearable. The constant sound of human anguish can never be unheard and can never be forgotten. Troops belly crawled over the rocks and under bullets to drag Bernie to the MRAP a mine-resistant armored vehicle that accompanied the patrol. You're doing fine, Bernie. You're going to make it. You might have a limp, they joke, but you're going to make it. We got you. Stay with us. Connor, a Marine in his third combat tour, held Bernie's head in his hands. He had been here before and knew what the last breaths that a man takes felt like. The pain in Bernie's legs suddenly faded. His breath grew shallow and incomplete. He was cold, he was scared, but he was not alone. His brother would never leave him behind. No Marine ever would. Bernie's last breath would live in Connor's mind, long after the bullet subsided, long after he'd returned home, long after he tried to reclaim his civilian life. He would never surrender, he would never forget. 
This is Psychedelics, a Scraps original podcast exploring the therapeutic use of psychedelics. An enthralling story of an improbable drug class as old as humankind itself, banished into exile, yet comes back soaring like a phoenix from the ashes to save mankind's affliction with mental health disorders. It's, it was obviously night when the ceremonies took place and the songs were, the songs are a kind of vehicle, uh, a vehicle f- to take you further into the experience that the medicine um, brings about. And the way that I remember it really is that I, I lay down, closed my eyes, I started listening to him sing and I was thinking, I got to a point where I was thinking, actually, this is, is this a bit of a waste of time because I don't feel anything, but it's not unpleasant because his songs, they're lovely songs, I love listening to them, but nothing's actually happened. Next thing I know, I just recognize that I've woken up, but I haven't woken up here in this reality. I'd woken up in the realm of what I now call spirit. And so this is, a, this is a massive shift, it just even waking up in that environment and it being real to, to my so that to me, the experiencer, that was as real as this is. I believe it now is as real as this is. But for me, that was in itself shocking, but wonderful and exciting and incredible. Uh, and so I recognized that I was actually unconscious in my physical body, but I was awake in the realm of spirit. And uh, in the realm of spirit, I can do as I please. I was, I became aware of an understanding of time and space. And I watched the planets revolve around our our solar system. And, um, but then at one point, This is actually in the second ceremony. At one point, a voice uh, came out of the darkness and said, have you, have you finished? As alluding to, have I finished playing? And I I recognized it as a voice of authority. Um, It wasn't stern, it was just plain, have you finished? And I thought, ah, ah, this is it. Okay, so I'm here to work, this is it. Yes, I have finished playing. Um, I'm ready to do some work. That was my non-vocal response, non-verbal response. Then I woke up, I just woke up again in a classroom, like a Victorian classroom. I was sat at a desk like this, and there was a blackboard in front of me. And then there was a woman teacher. She was clearly the teacher. I was alone, but she was the teacher. And I recognized that she was the spirit of the medicine manifested as a woman in front of me. And again, so I accepted that she was the authority and that she was the medicine. I intuitively understood that she was the medicine itself talking to me. And she highlighted, so the way that it worked was that she would highlight things in my life that were causing me trouble. So my behavior being one of them and my responses to certain stimuli. 
in society and relationships. So she would show me, I would relive experiences in my life, be it conflict, be it heartbreak, any sort of something that I was resistant to or found difficult in my life, but they were normally conflict between myself and someone and another, or how I dealt with heartbreak or adversity in some in some way. She would, I would relive it with her, and she would ask me if I felt that that way, the way that I had dealt with it, was still valuable and rewarding. And I would, having relived it, then I would say, no, no, that's not healthy, because normally I would become aggressive and violent and angry, and I recognised that it wasn't healthy for me. So then she would ask me if I would like to learn how to change that behaviour and live differently and respond differently. And if I said yes, she would then take my place in the experience and I could observe her as me experiencing that conflict, that adversity. And she would then respond in a healthier way. I hope this makes sense. I hope I'm articulating myself correctly, sufficiently she would respond in a healthier way that would resolve the matter in, a, in as healthy way as, you, as anyone could expect. Having observed that, she would then ask me, do you agree that that is a healthier way of behaving? If I said yes, she would then teach me how she did it step by step. And then if I accepted that I'd understood those lessons, she would put me back into that situation as myself and I would have to, as I was being tested by this any whatever stimuli, stimulant, I would have to remember each of the lessons and respond in a more healthy way each time. And if I passed that test, then I could move on to another test and another lesson in a different environment. If I failed, she very patiently said, I think we probably need to do that one again. And I would say, yes, I know, yes because I would have resorted to anger and violence and some frustration. And, and we would redo it again and she would revisit the lesson very patiently. Are you ready to go back and be tested? Yes, I am. Okay, here we go. And I would revisit it again. And the same situation would be played out in front of me and I would have to manage my emotions, manage my ego and respond from a place of compassion and forgiveness and gratitude and patience and, and love. Love is what we're talking about, trying to respond from a place of love. But the tests were specifically, can you have compassion for someone else? Can you have compassion for yourself? If you can have compassion for yourself and someone else, the next step is that you can, you can learn to forgive yourself and someone else. After you've learned to have compassion and forgive someone else and yourself, you can become grateful for the experiences that they present you and that you yourself experience. And then once you become grateful, everything changes because trauma, you could become grateful for the traumatic experience. And once you can do that, you no longer label it as traumatic. It's just a learning experience. And therefore, everything changed. <laughs>